0: Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa at 95.7 FM and in Toronto at 106.5. You can also listen anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app and just typing in your choice, either 95.7 ELMNT FM or 106.5 ELMNT FM and you can listen to either station Anywhere you want, right across Canada. You can also listen anywhere uh, on the web, uh, around the world, uh, through our website. Welcome to the show. I want to welcome our guest today, Suzanne Mithot, and uh, she is an author of uh, a book that I have been working my way through. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Suzanne. She is a writer, educator. Uh, She's an editor. She's a community worker, born and raised in Vancouver, in the Peace River, and raised in Peace River, Alberta. She is the co-author of Aboriginal Beliefs, Values, and Aspirations. She's also written for the Toronto Star, The Globe and Mail, Canadian Geographic, Windspeaker, and Quillen and Uh, And she lives right here in uh, the greater GTA area. And it is a pleasure for me to welcome her to the show today. Uh, about halfway through the show, we will be getting a call from one of our guests that were on the air yesterday with us, uh, uh, a Debbie... Uh, uh, Debbie... Uh, Charles Deborah Charles will be calling in, and uh, I got a little bit uh, stumped there because we have a board member by the with the same name, and I was I didn't want to say it incorrectly. Um, so uh, she will be calling in, and uh, she, uh, she was kind enough to be able to call in because the book that we're talking about, uh, uh that Suzanne has, which by the way is called Legacy Trauma Story and Indigenous Healing, uh, is impact slightly, partly, on, on the topic that uh, that goes through this this book of legacy. So I asked her if she wouldn't mind calling in because she is um, working on a case right now uh, that that touches uh, directly on this as an example of one story that you can uh, sort of get a reference point to for this. But it's not the only thing in this book that Suzanne has brought forward. Suzanne, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, you know, I have to tell you that when I got the book and, um, it sat on my desk for a little while and that's because we, we didn't know, we didn't have a date for you to come in at mm-hmm. this point in time. And uh, it sat there and somebody said, Hey, David, you better pick this up and start reading it. Cause you know, she's coming in soon. You know, I well, Okay. <laughs> and I have to tell you within probably the first couple of pages, I was ready to chuck the book. Mm hmm. I was ready to chuck it, yep. and I don't just mean put it down. I mean, I mean throw it down.
1: Yep, <laughs> I, I sort of expected that. Yep,
0: I was angry, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought, "Here we go again." Partly, but I also thought, yep. I, "I, it's too hard mm-hmm. for me to read what happened mm-hmm. when Europeans came here and and met our people, yep. and and the damage that they initiated right off the top." Yep. Yeah, when you read some of the things they're they're too hard to, you know, when you
1: think Yeah.
0: even thinking about it, uh, give a, a slight example and I I have to tell you folks, this is not what the book is about, <laughs> but it gives it gives graphic information that needs to be told for you to get the picture, mm-hmm. for you to get the understanding mm-hmm. of the story, the whole story here. Yeah. So when you hear things about games being played with how to kill people, mm-hmm like slicing somebody open, you know, in, in their midsection, mm-hmm. or, hey, I wonder if I can slice this person right down the middle with one, one shot. Mm-hmm. Or hang them by their arms and dangle them over fire and watch mm-hmm. them dance while mm-hmm. they're burning alive.
1: Yep. Yeah, and, and imagine, I can imagine what people are going through reading it. I mm-hmm. didn't put it in there to be sensational. Yep. I didn't put it in there to create pain. Um, for anyone or uh, to make people defensive, you know, if it's a non-Indigenous person reading it, Um, you know, when I was writing it and considering, you know, what really needs to be in this book, uh, the first thing I was thinking is that people need to know where this story starts. Mm. So that's the story in the title, you know, Trauma Story in Indigenous Healing, because it's been really good for the last... should we say, a few years since the TRC report and and maybe even longer, that people have been cluing into um, the residential school issue mm. and how this has created challenges in our communities and um, how that's impacted the Indigenous family mm. and Indigenous communities. And that is great. But I'm, I was a little concerned when I was writing this book that people would think that that was the only thing right. that had impacted us. And right. The case I make in the book is that colonization and colonialism, you know, the thinking that underpins colonization, um, is is about way more than one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's about way more than um, one period in history. Right. Um, it starts a long time ago, and it's going to be different for each community, depending on when contact happened and when certain events happened. Um, and the other thing is that colonization is continuing today. Right. Right? Okay, well, yeah. I
0: mean, we know that, I think, as Indigenous people. Well, I peoples. think this book backs that up.
1: Well, good. And, and I wanted non Indigenous people to understand that because, you know, so often we get told as Indigenous peoples, why are you guys always talking about yeah, right. the past? Get
0: over it. Right? Get over it.
1: Move on. And it's like, mm, well, huh. So that's why I had to start in a certain difficult place mm-hmm. is to say, look, this is the Holocaust of what happened in the Americas. It is still going on. And things are different. We're we're starting to talk more, you know, indigenous and non-indigenous peoples Mm. and working on some of the issues. And I'm not going to turn away from that. Um, I think it's a really good thing. But I needed to start where the story started, Yeah. right? Yeah. So
0: having said that, um, we are not going to get through everything that this book has to offer today, by any means. But I want. why don't we start at the beginning? As I mentioned, I wanted to throw this down. But in that first first chapter, you said something that made me stop and think. Huh. And it made me think very carefully about some unanswered questions in my own life. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details of, of my own background or, or my own history. But I will tell you this. When... You talked about blood memory.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I had to stop.
1: Yep.
0: And I, I had, and I went, "Holy smokes!" Yep. Does this answer some questions about things I've been struggling with? Yeah. And I'll tell you something. Since I've been reading that book, those two words, "blood memory," have not left me, mm. and it keeps coming back. And you know what? I, I, I have to. I'm gonna draw. The image that comes to me now when I think mm. about this mm. is, you know, it's exactly what you said uh, the idea of getting over it, you know, move mm. on. Well, I have a history of the lineage of my history going behind me, uh-huh. and I'm stuck in taffy. Mm
1: hmm yeah
0: so you know how when it just sticks to you, you're yep. trying to get away from it, it just pulls it yep. pulls back at you, yeah, and that's the image I have that yeah, I'm trying to get away from this, yeah there's stuff that I didn't even know was was pulling at me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's it's pulling me back or it's holding yep. me back, and it's it's
1: yeah,
0: and I just went, Wow, does this ever make a whole lot of sense in so many ways, mm-hmm. and I think that that's part of what your book and why I think your book is very valid in terms of the information that it brings because if I can use the word taffy or something yeah. like that, that you're stuck in, yep. that you don't even realize, because it is invisible.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Very much. It's invisible. As you, and we ta- you talk about that in the yep. book as well, stuff that's invisible. So, yeah.
1: And it leads people to to somehow, you know, think that they are bad people. I mm. mean, in my community work, working with community members, like at various Indigenous organizations, and as an educator as well, teaching Indigenous kids, you know, sometimes people are dealing with these feelings and they don't know where they're coming from Mm. and so they start to think that there's something wrong with them and it's like no man we we just have to look at what's been passed down Mm. and how that's affecting our lives today and uh, we can do that through our own ideas um, like blood memory and and not every nation Mm. has that concept but Mm. Uh, many do. I mean, I've talked to so many different indigenous peoples from across the Americas, from mm. South America, Central, you know, North America here. And we, you know, I've heard, you know, many people say, oh, yes, we have that concept as well. Because the stories of our ancestors, you know, we know that stories have energy, mm. right? Mm. And that energy is real. Stories are alive. Mm. And the stories of our ancestors are our stories, right? We carry them in a very physical way. Um, and at the launch of it last night uh, here in Toronto, Um, Diane Hill from Six Nations, who does some healing work out there. Um, And she's so amazing, by the way. Uh, She was on the panel. Um, Mm -hmm. We had a panel discussion at the launch event. And she was talking and has always been talking for like the last 20, 30 years about how, you know, our stories, how we carry them in our bodies energetically. And how, if we talk about moving toward a place of health and wellness and change as individuals and as communities that we need to work through the body mm. because those stories have have a literal like weight to them right yeah uh,
0: <clears throat> I you know I, I get it, and I ha- must say that that folks we are talking about uh, this book that that approaches these things from an indigenous perspective and, and what has happened from indigenous people, but by no means uh, is this uh, is this just for Indigenous people, that this crosses all any yeah. trauma, any injury, uh, yeah. trauma that has happened. I, I guess I just wanted to say that that blood memory mm. became more more of a literal thing to me when you mm. said that 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 the blood actually carries these things forward when you get passed down to your next of kin and, and to your children and they carry. And that's yeah. That's what I was thinking because I was going. There is no there is no connection for me with these things that I've been feeling or the way mm-hmm. I've been feeling.
1: Except this, yep. this blood, yep, and um... and even Western science nowadays, um, they have this concept called epigenetics, mm, right. where they're talking about little switches mm. on the chromosomes, mm. on the DNA, mm. and how you know our life experiences can either, you know, uh, if if we have pleasant experiences, right. where those switches will never turn on, right. and but if we have stressful or chronically um, you know, chronic stress in our lives, how that can affect those those things will turn on, right. and how those those things can even be passed down right. to your your children. Yep. So even Western science uh, now is is recognizing the whole blood memory right. concept. Yeah. Uh,
0: and the other thing that came out of that, of course, was you gave the example of, of uh, some Holocaust uh, children mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, who had not been part of the Holocaust, yep. and yet they were having nightmares yep. and dreams yep. of of things yep. that. They they were going. Why am I getting these yeah. dreams? Because to... they had
1: never been right. in a concentration camp. Yeah. They were living well after World War right. II, right. and there's so much research. Um, you know, and they talk about it uh, in Europe. Uh, they call it the second generation. Mm. So the Holocaust survivors, and then their an- their descendants are called the second generation. And in all this research, um, yeah, and and I've even talked to um, people who have survived the Armenian genocide, who mm. say that you know uh, I've had nightmares, and yet I was born in Canada. Mm. You know, my parents and my grandparents went through certain things. What is that about?
2: Mm.
1: Well, I think it's about how this stuff is passed down, mm. you know. Um, and, and and that's, you know, I would say here, too, that don't forget we can also pass down the joy, too, right?
2: Well, so yeah. our
1: resiliencies yes. as Indigenous peoples and our joys and the way we have survived colonization, mm. which just shows how awesome we are, mm. um, we pass that down, too. But this is a book about the intergenerational trauma side of it, so it's yeah. the negative side of it. But
0: yeah, uh, but you're right, and and I w- I was thinking that that as well. I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, you know, if if the the negative side can be passed down, the positive side can also yeah. be passed down, absolutely. Which yeah. makes me think about the structure of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the don't get picture. me started. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, okay. but you know, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. chapter
1: nine's about. <laughs> You know the the systems and institutions of society and how we might need to change those. Speaking
0: of chapters, yeah. <laughs> uh, what I really liked about this is that you, you you give the summary sort of at the end of each chapter, be- and mm-hmm. I think that helps a lot because mm-hmm. there is so much information yeah. that you put into each chapter. Yeah. It's nice to be able to have that summary so you can look yeah. at, go, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and and I appreciate that. Good. Yeah. Now, um, so as as we were saying, uh, going through this, the second chapter. Uh, talks to some degree about control, the mm-hmm. control that the the um, suppressor has over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also the person that is being uh, uh, subjected on um, gives control to that person. Yep. You um, begin
1: to buy into their vision. Right. That somehow you are lesser and they mm. are the ones that, that must be, you know, their rules adhered to. You sort of buy into that.
0: And, and you talk about... Um, you know, again, this day school. Mm. You talk about the SV forty. It sounds like a vehicle. <laughs> but it's this, this virus. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of examples yeah. of things that have yeah. to do with residential schools or yep. schools where yep. where, where uh, orphanage kids, uh, many Indigenous mm-hmm. kids, go. And, and the horrible. Yeah. Again, these things you 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 look at, you hear about, but when you see the yeah. that, what has happened. Forced lobotomies, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, that was my father's drugs. experience. Yes. Yeah, and um,
1: yeah, and that vaccine experiment yeah. that you just yeah. referenced—that was done on Cree children, who were in a supposedly in a in a day school yeah. situation, but they yeah. were not educated for yeah. three years. They right. were used in a vaccine experiment. And,
0: and that wasn't and that
1: long ago, if nope, I'm correct. I, ugh, I don't have that 1930s, page. in 1930s, 40s. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's very recent. Yeah and And that, in fact, is is you know the impacts of of those sorts of experiences on not just those individuals but the entire community, mm. you know, um, because it led to increased um, cancer deaths. yeah, it's led to them passing uh, you know the the you know genes down to their children, and now the whole community is affected by this. Like, I don't think non-indigenous Canadians truly understand the extent to which colonization um, was a very planned and deliberate act. Because we we get, you know, this idea sometimes, and, and people like to say that, oh, it's just contact. And there was good things and there was bad things. Well, sure, you can talk about it like that. But I think we need to start understanding that colonization was a very deliberate attempt to, you know, rid us of the land that yeah. other people wanted. Yep. I mean, you know, and James Daszak wrote that fantastic book a few years back called Clearing the Plains mm. where he talked about the very deliberate policies of John A. Macdonald's government and, and other governments too mm. mm-hmm. in terms of clearing the prairies so they could get the railway out to the west, right? right. And get the land opened up. So and, these and are very deliberate policies.
0: Yeah, and you and you, uh, you mentioned that, uh, mentioning Sir John A. and, and how... It was a del- deliberate act to sort of starve them mm-hmm.
1: to yes. submission almost, yeah. you would say. Right. And the Dashek book really talks about that. I shouldn't be talking about someone else's book, I guess, but, you, <laughs> you, you know, give a shout there. out, you know, because <laughs> these are the things that, yeah. you know, have, have brought us to, yeah. to um, understanding our yeah. stories in this country. Yeah.
0: So uh, before we go any further, uh, I would like to ask you this. Mm. Why did you decide to write this?
1: Hmm. I love that question. Because um, in true indigenous form, it's not just one kind of tidy answer. Mm. It's very circular. Mm. <laughs> um, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the first thing um, was uh, I've I've used to work as a teacher in the public school system, mm. teaching both indigenous and non-indigenous kids.
0: And you give examples of that in here, yeah, about yeah. the working relationships yep, and working
1: with them yeah. and and working with colleagues and and how you know yep. their experiences in the school system. And yeah, that that's part of the book as well. Um, And when I was teaching them, you know, I had lots of questions from both my Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. So the Indigenous kids would always be asking me stuff about what was going on in their families. You know, they would come to me, even if they weren't in my class, they would come to me after school, you know, on their way home and want to talk about stuff, right? So they were trying to make sense of what was going on in their families' experiences that their parents and that they were having. And they wanted to make sense of what they saw in the community in terms of, you know, sometimes the friction and the conflict um, and the the fighting about, no, you can't do it that way. Culture should be done this way. And all those arguments with Mm. the adults. The kids were trying to make sense of that. Mm. And also trying to make sense of what was happening politically around them. Because we used to talk about the news and what was going on in Canada and how that impacted us as Indigenous peoples. And so they really had questions about making sense of, how am I supposed to live in this country as an Indigenous young person today, right? And then my non-Indigenous kids would always trying to, we're always trying to understand, uh, like, you know, walking somewhere and seeing an Indigenous person experiencing homelessness, or you know, dealing with addictions um, and substance use, right? And so they they would have questions for me around, well, why? And and how come, like, there's so many myths, right? And I would say, well, you know, other people do have these same issues, but we would have these discussions. So I started writing the book first for young people mm. because they're our future. Mm. And mm. if we want to create a different society, they're it. And how do we create uh, a new legacy for them? Mm. I talk about the legacy of colonization on us, mm. but how do we create a new legacy for our children, mm. Right. And then the other reason I wrote the book, for sure, um, and I didn't really understand this fully until I really got into writing, I don't think, um, was to try to make sense of my own family story Mm. and my own life experiences. Um, Because, you know, right through the 90s, I'm seventh generation, you know, it was the whole cultural reclamation process in the 90s and getting out there and being an activist and the placards and marching in the streets and, you know, post-Oka and all that Mm. stuff. Um, But, you know... I, that that process of healing does not just happen in a few years. It it can take decades. And so this book um well, it took decades to put yeah, us in Well, sense. exactly. And I think Marie Sinclair was it who mm. said, you know, it took like three hundred yeah, years, exactly, yeah. For this situation to be the way it is today. Mm. It's gonna take us three hundred to right. heal to, to change it. And so writing this book, I, I wrote it because I wanted to still try to make sense of some of my own experiences. Mm. Um You know, and also, I think the final reason why I wrote it is because I want that cross-cultural dialogue. I want non-Indigenous people to really understand, you know, uh, per the kids' questions in schools, you know, in the schools that I've taught in, you know, when when you see us in certain states, Mm. see, because we tend not to be seen as college professors, many of us are, or as writers or whoever we are, right? Um, They tend to see us when we're, you know, sitting on the corner in a piece of cardboard, So, but when you see that, you know, please read this book and understand how, you know, that person's story has led them to that place, and that that isn't the sole um, sum of their story too. That they are a person who has experienced joy, right? You know, who has, you know, other life experiences, but certain parts of their story have led them to this situation today. So, I think those are the main reasons.
0: How difficult was it for you to write it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I had to ask my publisher for two extensions. Mm. Uh, it was late. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm a professional writer. Yeah. Uh, that horrified me. Mm. Uh, my, my work is to meet deadlines. Mm. Um, but uh, I just, uh, you know, it was not going to be ready because there was so much going on. Sometimes I would have to put the writing aside mm. And I would have to work through my own stuff, as you said, opening right. up, you know, yeah. what I was feeling as I was writing it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I write about my parents' stories yeah. um, in this book. Um, not in depth, because it's, it's not a memoir. The book is right. not about me or my right. family. but no,
0: examples. I use, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: examples of the things that I'm talking about. And so there was times that I'd have to put it away, and I knew it wasn't going to be ready on time. Mm. So, you know, I talked with my publisher, and they are amazing. And um, my editor, she said, Suzanne... I would rather the book be right than on time. Mm. So I just ah, I could mm. breathe right. <laughs> because Nicely. I knew I had nice. her support. That's great. Around she wanted the right book. Yeah. And she she said, "Okay, we're we're here." Great. I mean, we can't go on forever. Clearly. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know, I have to say, you know, this is kind of <laughs> And then, you know, so a few few months later, then I said, uh, Susan, it's still not done." Uh, right. and she said, "Okay, well, we can really only go until the end of March, hun, but I can give you another few months, right? So it it was a difficult process, but it was also an incredibly freeing process. And so I want that to be the reading experience for the reader as well.
0: Great. Okay, that's a great spot to stop because we do have to take a break. And I wrote down something that coincides with that. So we'll take this break on Element FM and Moment of Truth. But we will be right back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest today is Susan Methot, or Mithot, uh Metho, I should say, uh, if it's in French. I believe that's part of her roots. Uh,
1: There's like probably about 15 different ways you can <laughs> pronounce my name, because, you know, I don't speak French mm. for reasons you'll find out in the book. But mm. um, and, uh, yeah. yeah, so I say Methot, but right. that's probably wrong.
0: <laughs> her, her, her book is uh, Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing. And uh, we're, we're talking about that book. And in about five minutes or so, uh, or just over five minutes, uh, we're going to have a caller call in from uh, the West Coast. Uh, She was on the show yesterday, and her name is Deborah Charles, and she is a prisoner's legal service, uh, 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 works for prisoners' legal services uh, as a lawyer, and uh, she's going to be giving an example of one person's story that ties into this. We had her on the show yesterday and asked her if she wouldn't mind calling back in just to uh to talk about that a little bit, and maybe that's a good point uh to get to before she calls mm-hmm. in just so you can set it up mm-hmm. but um just before the break, you mentioned that uh that I wrote down healing this was a mm-hmm. healing process for you mm-hmm. personally to write this yeah, Can you talk definitely. about that a little bit
1: definitely i mean, and that i think it it relates to what I was saying before the break um well a few minutes ago around how our stories have energy Mm. and we carry them. And as you said, without even sometimes knowing them, Mm. you know what we carry. Um, So I I can say that when I was writing my parents' stories, um, I just thought I'm a writer. That's what I do. And this time I'm going to use this example. And so, okay, let's write it. And my mother had given me a notebook. Um, I call it a diary, but it wasn't like a day by day diary, but, um, a notebook about things that had happened in her life. She gave that to me, oh, well over 20 years ago in the 90s and said, you know, use it to write my story. She wanted her story known. And -hmm. I thought, okay, so I've even got some stuff. I've even got some writing, you know, first, you know, primary source. And uh, I started writing. And little did I know the emotions that would emanate from that. Um, I started feeling a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. But I also, in once, and I talk about this in the book, I kind of get meta there around you know uh, uh, dealing with you know bringing all of these emotions up, but then once I got rid of that anger toward my parents, what what actually came to me was a sense of compassion
2: mm. and
1: an understanding of oh that's why mm. they parented the way they did right and that's why certain things happened right. um, and it it was freeing mm. because it it enabled me to say huh, okay. I don't have to carry anything. Like their stories don't have to take up real estate inside me mm. anymore. Right. I can say, all right, that's your story. Mm. And I have, and I was able to cry for them, mm. not for me, right? but for them. And to actually make an emotional connection with both of them. And I'm not in touch with either of them. Mm. I believe both are still alive, mm. but you know, as in many indigenous families, my family is incredibly fractured. Yep. Um, and, you know, but I was able to actually feel an emotional connection to them both through that work for the first time, where I was able to actually feel for them mm. and not have it be, why aren't you paying attention to me? And why aren't you meeting my needs? And why, right. you know? yeah. and, and those are all valid, right. but I was able to just feel for them. Yeah. And that cleared a lot of space inside me. Mm. And then once I was through with the anger and then I could get to the compassion, then I could feel the grief. Mm. And then... Everything sort of started clearing out, mm. and then I had clear space for me. Mm. And where do I want to be in life? And w- what type of person do I want to be? Mm. And who do I want to be in my community? And mm. what responsibility do I have? I mean, not that I hadn't been doing those things before, but
0: what do, what do I want to be when I grow up?
1: Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Only I was in my late forties yeah, at the time. Well, I think you know um, <laughs> Michael Thrasher, who's the elder, the grandfather mm. that I, I I use his particular model of the medicine wheel in the book. And uh, his his teachings and his work have been really instrumental in my life mm. um, for almost thirty years now. Mm. Um, he often says, you know, that uh, there's there's something about the medicine wheel that just helps us get unstuck. Mm-hmm. And so that was the process. That is right. the process of healing is getting unstuck, right. learning how to move, sure. taking the winds of change, mm. as Michael says, mm. and you know, making sure that we're because. Um, you know, the teachings that I've received say that um, the only real law of the universe is one of constant change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you look at the natural world, sure. the seasons, yep. the weather, yep. the moon, the sun, right. it's all about change. Yeah, yeah. Right? right. It's just it's change, change, change. And humans are really bad at change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So writing this book. Um, Why do you think we're bad at changing? <sighs>
0: well, that's another story. No, it's well, it's all about the patterns. Right. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I do think I talk about this a little bit in the book. Mm. Um. Although maybe not, you know, in such a direct way, uh, you know, relating to your mm. exact question. But I think it's a good question because I think we get into patterns of behavior and patterns of interacting with each other mm. and with the natural world mm. and uh, just being in the world because those were the adaptations that we created as children to survive the yeah. stress yep. or the you know incomplete or the, or parenting, the person. The abuse, right, and you do the control figure, yep. the colonizer. Yep. Yep. And then you get into those patterns and then those are the things that have literally kept you alive. Those are the resiliencies. That's right. They're the patterns. But it's like at a certain point, they become maladaptive. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, they become an impediment to intimacy and Mm -hmm. to self-awareness and to being in the world in an open, but yet still with healthy boundaries, Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, why we're bad at change because Mm -hmm. we get into our patterns and They're the things that have kept us alive, right? Right. But we have to learn to make uh, new patterns. Unsafe to feel that way, exactly. And then, and that's and people get triggered all the time around past experiences. But then something happens in the present day that triggers that past for them. So they go into those patterns of behavior. But it's like, hmm. so you know, dealing with this stuff creates the space. To create new patterns so maybe that leads
0: us into this this uh, this, this dangerous offenders mm. realm of yeah. things that, that you make reference to and that our caller is going to talk about a little bit in Saskatchewan yeah. and the the over uh, you know I mean there there are far too many, uh, of of our indigenous people that are in uh, incarcerated yep. first of all, yep. and and as you point out for yep. some some silly things they're oh, yeah. made out to be dangerous offenders. Yes, yeah. Um, and do you want to? So yeah. I think Deborah's on the line, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, we'll bring her on. Is she is she on the air? Good morning, Deborah. Are you there?
2: Hi. Hi, I am here. Thank you. Well,
0: thanks for joining us on on the show again today. We really appreciate it. And also with pleasure. us here is uh, is. Um, it's Suzanne Suzanne is here with us in the studio. Hi, and
2: nice hi, to meet Suzanne. you over the
1: radio.
0: Yes
2: <laughs> hi, I've been listening. thank you
0: so uh, so I'm going to put this out to both of you. Um, you know um Suzanne, perhaps you want to just set us up a little bit. Give us some background about maybe some numbers or or how do how do people end up incarcerated and become dangerous offenders mm. under that that mm. name?
1: Uh, Well, and I'm sure Deborah can add to this. She's probably the the way more expertise than I do. But, you know, according to the research I've done and my work in the community, what I know and what many of us know is that what are we in in most provinces? We're what, and even nationally, like three or four percent of the total Mm. population. Well, in some institutions, uh, and particularly in Saskatchewan, if I remember my research correctly, we can be up to 80 percent of yes. the incarcerated yes. population. right? So a mm, little bit of a thing. And so we were just talking about maladaptive mm-hmm. patterns of yep. behavior, that the things that help us survive as children living in abusive households or with you know abusive care situations or without anybody there and having to just survive on our own, um, having to keep ourselves safe in unsafe environments, the chronic stress of colonization, um, the blood memory and the things that have been handed down to us, these unresolved emotions that so many Indigenous peoples carry as a result of intergenerational trauma, we, we create these ways of being in the world, and we often get triggered, as I've said, in the present day by things that actually happened in the past, right? And so I think when we have these maladaptive patterns, we interact with the world sometimes in a way where we're always trying to protect ourselves, right? So we don't want to be vulnerable, we, we don't understand what it is to be to have intimacy with other mm-hmm. people generally speaking um, and then we get in and and there's a lot of unresolved anger and mm-hmm. rage too mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. anger is is sometimes a justifiable emotion sure. a response to being treated unfairly mm-hmm. we all have emotions and they're there for a reason so that we can figure out what's going on in our lives and go, mm-hmm. "Oh I need to deal with that right, right. right. but rage um, and that's a big part, according to the Aboriginal Healing Foundation of intergenerational trauma. This rage that so many Indigenous peoples carry is actually um, a response to that original trauma. Mm. And, you know, the rage felt by the, you know, the victim, I don't like that word sometimes, the survivor, I mm. prefer to say. And so, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, sometimes that rage becomes a protective factor, right mm, mm. because if we're enraged and we act out against the world then the world can't hurt us mm. right
2: it's taking all about control as you talk exactly about, right?
1: taking control of a situation feeling like we're like in control, control through yeah. that rage yeah. because we sense that we're not in control and right. that's very dangerous for someone who has survived yes. childhood trauma or repeated trauma throughout yeah. life right and also it's about human development which I talk about in the book too mm. because if if as children we're not, You know, if our emotions are not um, understood and validated by the adults around us because Mm -hmm. they're too busy with their own traumatic Mm -hmm. experiences and their own unresolved emotions, um, then we don't learn how to self-regulate our emotions as well. Right. Right. So there's ways in which then that plays into... Um, you know, our activities and become the everyday impacts of trauma that we then are e- experiencing and sort of projecting out into the world in the present day. But right. it's all to do with the past, right. right?
0: So maybe that's a good point for us to just uh, get Deborah involved with the conversation. Deborah is a staff lawyer at Prisoners Legal Services, and that's in Burnaby, BC. De- uh, Deborah, as you're listening here, and as you've been listening, um, with the case that you're working on, um, how how does this uh, do you want? Do you want to tell us a little, bit, little bit more, uh, or expand on on what you you are working on right now?
2: Yeah, um, I'm finding this conversation really interesting about how the previous trauma affects um, what's going on now. Because I think really where where what I have really been seeing in my case is just that 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 trauma is ongoing. It continues to be inflicted today. Mm, yeah. And um, I was just wanting to share with you um, a case of uh, Mr. Joey Toussaint. Some people may have seen stories of him in the media recently. Um, he's a 32-year-old old Dene man from the Black Lake Nation in northern Saskatchewan. Um, he was raised by his grandfather, mostly. Um, his grandfather taught him traditional practices. And then when he was 15, he lost his grandfather, moved to live with, with his mother lost his grand, his mother less than a month later in a, in a hit-and-run accident. Mm. And by the age of 16, he was in youth prison. Um, he'd gotten involved in gangs. Mm. And in youth prison, um, Mr. Toussaint was physically abused on numerous occasions by prison guards. He would run away. He would escape the prison. He would be forcibly brought back on several occasions where he'd continue to be physically assaulted. And... Um, by the age of 18, he was in the Correctional Service of Canada custody. This is adult custody, federal corrections. And at, as an 18 and 19-year-old, um, repeatedly sexually assaulted in adult custody in, in our correction system in Canada. And um, he he believes that guards would let other prisoners into his cell to sexually assault him. And it's becoming more and more clear that, that those, those traumas that happened to him within the system that was supposed to be rehabilitative and reintegrative of this man from Black Lake Nation um, have, have caused him unbelievable psychological harm. Um, he has often been um, stuck in solitary confinement, Mm -hmm. Often he has chosen to be there because he's too afraid to be outside of that space and he's not been given another safe space to be, another option uh, where he does not feel afraid. Mm -hmm. He's afraid of both other prisoners, afraid of staff. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that it has become clear in previous years um, that there was a very serious culture. He was at Edmonton Institution um, Mm -hmm. for quite a while for a number of years where a lot of this happened. And um, it has come out more recently what the culture was like at Edmonton Institution. Mm-hmm. So whereas before uh, he would have just been a prisoner making stories up about these sexual assaults and about guard abuse, about guards locking him in, double-dooring him, locking him in areas with incompatible prisoners who could then physically assault him as well, um, I think that is becoming more and more believable with, with what we know about the culture in that prison, um, probably ongoing, but certainly when he was there. And um, and I, as a result of all of this, this man has spent over 2,000 days, that is, I mean, there are 365 days in a mm-hmm. year, and a year is a long time, over 2,000 days in segregation, which is solitary confinement, which mm-hmm. is, 22 or more hours a day on your own in a cell with no meaningful human contact. And the harms of solitary confinement are so well known now by the courts, by the literature, by international community to be torture, to cause irreversible psychological harm, to cause self-harm, to cause suicidality, to worsen symptoms of mental illness. And, And Mr. Toussaint is exhibiting and has exhibited for a number of years all of this. And it has gotten worse. He has a number of diagnoses. He has he he cuts up his arms. This got started getting worse in two thousand five. He self harms in a number of ways. But um, you know, he, he, he finds razor blades no matter where he is in the prison. There are razor blades available. Um, you know, okay. unproven allegation, but that guards leave them for him or arrange mm-hmm. to get them to him. Um he he his arms he's had to start cutting in different directions to make space, you know once he's mm-hmm. run out of space, and he he is constantly tormented, constantly terrified, he will sit in his cell with a razor blade barricaded barricaded in a cell with a razor blade to his neck when he thinks the emergency response team is coming. I mean, mm-hmm. that is a team of, it's, it's basically a riot squad that mm-hmm. storms in on this vulnerable person with a mental disability, mm-hmm. stuck in a cell all alone, and, and he is terrified of them. He's been OC sprayed in response to this self-harm, which arises out of the segregation put upon him and, and arises out of his mental disabilities and mental illnesses, his, the response to him, self-harming, is to put him in an observation cell where he sleeps on a concrete slab with the lights on 24 hours a day. When he's on high watch, there are different levels. Um, he's being OC sprayed or pepper sprayed, the emergency response team. He's been um, literally tied to a panel bed where he can't move anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this continued approach, this this I don't even know what to call it. It has all served to increase his self harm, um, and and I think this is just such a um, it's such a, a a vivid picture. The ongoing continuation of this, of um, the real effects of the over-representation of Indigenous people, not just in the justice system, Mm -hmm. but in maximum security prisons. And not just in maximum security prisons, but in solitary confinement within Mm -hmm. those prisons. Many, many more Indigenous people go into solitary confinement. They stay there longer. Um, And within all of this, I mean, I've talked so much about the mental illness and these symptoms of segregation, which, I mean, I didn't even list, but anxiety, loss of emotional control, impending emotional breakdown, aggression, rage, all of these things that actually result in further what's termed behavioral problems mm-hmm. and further, further segregation and further punishment. Um, amongst all of this is his effort to stay connected with his culture. It's this one place where he feels Connection in a place where he has no no access, no, you know, and and so there there are elders in, in different institutions within the Correctional Service of Canada. Um, it's um, a very helpful thing mm-hmm. for the government to be able to to write on paper, um, and it is a helpful thing for some people in some cases to have this connection. Um, but I think what's challenging um, that I'm seeing in this case is where that is used against a person Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they have been in segregation and, and CSC says we're transferring you to a different different institution in a different province to alleviate your segregated status and then they get shipped off to Quebec and then they get shipped off to New Brunswick and um these are all true in Mr. Toussaint's case to places where he didn't speak the language where he, he didn't feel like he connected with the elders where he was often offered spiritual practices that were not in line with those that he found to be significant mm-hmm. and yet um you know, it would be on paper. Well, he's refusing to engage with the elders, and oh, look, we gave him a smudge. You know, and and I just think it's he. He's now in a place where he is. Um, he's back in Saskatchewan. You did speak about Saskatchewan earlier and the trends there, and he has been trying to get a sweat for so long and has not had one in two years and yet we are hearing that he is has just cultural practices available to the extent that, you know, he shouldn't be asking to go anywhere else to a therapeutic environment because these cultural practices are apparently so available to him. Mm. Um, whereas he is in solitary confinement, he has not had a sweat in two years. He has had three pipe ceremonies um, in seven months. He's been at Saskatchewan Penitentiary, um, which I don't believe is very much um, and and there is an elder there who who does speak his language, but he doesn't have real access to have daily follow up with that elder. He sees yeah. the elder when the elder's there when the elder has time when the elder's at work, you know yeah. um and I just it it's a really vivid image to me when I hear this analogy of of prisons continuing what residential schools did. Mm-hmm. In taking Indigenous people from their communities and families, mm-hmm. um, and and I just there's just one more thing I wanted to say before before <laughs> I stop, and and that is, um, you know, Mr. Toussaint is an example of how Indigenous people enter the system at a young age mm-hmm. on minor charges, and it gets more and more serious. And I think something to just top off what I've already described to you is that Mr. Toussaint was declared a dangerous offender mm-hmm. in 2014-15. Uh, um, the trial-level judge in Saskatchewan uh, considered his Gladue factors and tried to do so and said, you know, he should be given another chance. He'll get a three-year sentence. This was, this was generous. and Mm -hmm. five years of of supervision and the court of appeal said that the court did not have the discretion to even do that if he met the definition of a dangerous offender he had to be given an indeterminate sentence (laughs) so now we have Mr. Two Saints in this situation where the trauma continues and where he Mm -hmm. is in the place where he refaces the triggers and the memories of that trauma daily and his sentence is indeterminate there is is no end date
1: Locked up for life. Uh,
2: and, uh, yeah, I just, um, he, you know, he he has been trying for a long time to, even within the context of that system, get into a therapeutic environment, get to a treatment center. And, you know, the the government is strongly resisting. The argument is that, you know, oh, he's doing so well now at the institution he's at. And um, he's got all these Diné cultural practices there for him at the treatment center. The elder isn't Diné, so that would be harmful for him. And, and using his culture now against him to keep him in a place where his only option is continued solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And that there uh, is the story of Joey Toussaint and where we're at
0: we appreciate you uh, sharing that, uh, Deborah, and and also we appreciate that Joey Toussaint allows you to share that story mm-hmm. with us exactly. today. Um, yeah. I, I want you to, uh, we, we've, we're we overtaking a break. We do have to take a pause, but uh, are you able to stay on the line for another minute? Yes, I can. Okay, please hold the line. We're going to come back and talk with our guests right after this on Moment of Truth and Element FM. We're back on Moment of Truth. Welcome to the show. We have two guests with us. One on the line, who is Deborah Charles. She is a uh, prisoner's legal... uh, She works with uh, Prisoners Legal Services, rather. She's a lawyer, staff lawyer there in Burnaby, B.C., and she's just been sharing a story of uh, someone she's been working with, uh, Joey Toussaint, uh, who is in prison at the moment, and and been sharing our story, as hard as it is to hear, uh, of value for us to hear in terms of the the book that uh, our other guest in the Su- uh, Suzanne uh Mithat or Mytho as it might be pronounced uh her book Legacy Trauma Story and Indigenous Healing Deborah I'd like to ask you um we, we're we're getting close to our time but uh we're going to have Suzanne come back on the show again but uh Deborah I just want to know from your perspective when you he- heard what we were talking about earlier in terms of history and and the uh uh you know, colonization. Do you see uh some of this in dealing with your client about what we've been talking about?
2: You know, I, I don't I don't feel qualified to draw the connection, sure. but I must say that I'm finding um I found uh your and Suzanne's discussion to be really enlightening mm. um and really helpful. You know, I've been trying to understand ways to explain the rage and aggression and violence um, and seeing that within just things that have started uh, since, you know, since he was a teenager. And I, I, I found Suzanne's comments on, you know, the blood memory and all of these things to be really helpful, just in understanding the depth and also the um cruelty of using that against him at this point.
0: Well, I think that's the answer we were looking for. It made sense to you. You got something out of that 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 kind of uh, triggered a uh, a response that that made some some uh some connection for you and I think that uh that that's good to hear. Uh I would also recommend if you can maybe pick up the book uh and have a look at it uh legacy uh and uh and and uh, maybe read through that it may be of a further uh, I'm really help looking
2: to you. forward to reading it very much so. Yeah.
0: So Deborah I want to say uh thank you very much again for for taking part and being part of the show and sharing that with us and please tell uh Joey we appreciate him uh being allowed to share his story as mm-hmm. well. Uh if you're speaking We'll with let him.
2: him we'll we'll definitely let him know next time we speak mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Thank you both of you. Thank you so much, Suzanne.
1: Thank you. And and let Joey know that you know we're all sending him good energy as well. Mhm. We'll
2: definitely do that. Thank you. Thanks
0: for joining us today, Suzanne. I mean, Deborah. Thank you. Uh, That (laughs) was Deborah Charles, and she is a staff lawyer at Prisoners Legal Services in Burnaby, BC, telling us about uh, her client that she's working with, uh, uh, Joey Toussaint, uh, who is incarcerated at the moment. So, Deborah, getting back to your book and how
1: this ties in with. Oh, that's Deborah. I'm Suzanne. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get you. I had to get you. (laughs) Did I just say that? Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) We're human. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Sorry, Suzanne. <laughs> no, Thanks not for straightening me up. <laughs> it's, it's you know, when when Deborah was talking mm. and and I was gesticulating at you like, yes, yes, yes. 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 I, I I was hearing everything that she was saying and relating to it, mm. um, you know, both through my father's story. He was incarcerated mm. in uh, the Ocala prison farm, which is mm. no longer in existence, but it mm. was also in Burnaby. BC. And uh, before that, he was in an orphanage Mm. in Montreal. Mm. So, uh, you know, what she was saying about how, you know, the systems, and I say this in the book as well, the systems and institutions of society actually create um, the, um, what do I, what word do I want to use? It's not really just the ingredients to how we become, but it's like, it it sets the stage, Mm. right, for... Um, these responses that we have against those same systems and institutions, and that's the control that you raised before and that Mm -hmm. I raise in the book, Mm -hmm. right? That's the colonization is still continuing, part of it. That's the the control relationship where the colonizer, the oppressor has all the control. And when you respond in any way to try to keep yourself safe or because you're enraged, um, rightfully so, (laughs) or because you're fearful, um, then that gets used against you and and those sort of maladaptive things become the things that are used against you to further the mm. control, right? Mm. So it's, it's this big circle. Mm. And that's why, you know, I wanted to write this book because it's like we have to understand these interactions and how this happens. And we do have allies in the justice system. I write about one judge mm. who, who said, you know, why is it that I'm locking up, like— I think the kid was 10 years old or something or 12 right. years old. Why am I locking this kid up? He needs mental health care. Right. But there are no beds in this province. I believe that the judge was in Alberta. Yeah. yeah right. um, so so there are people who are even, you know, non-Indigenous people in the system who are questioning it. Mm-hmm. But for sure, uh, these systems are used against us as Indigenous peoples. And that's part of the control relationship. Right. Yep. Um.
0: The uh, I think that uh, Deborah mentioned the Gladue case, and you mentioned the Gladue case as well, mm-hmm. which is 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 was was there as as a way to try and and look at the trauma and the mm-hmm. legacy uh, of Indigenous people. And as you point yeah. out later on in your book, it's not meant to say, oh, this is giving a lighter sentence. It's no. just to take some things into consideration. Do yeah. you want to expand on that a bit?
1: Sure. And um, at the launch event last night, we had um, for the book we had uh, someone from Aboriginal Legal Services uh, here in Toronto. Uh, speaking on the panel about it, um, and and I was so happy um, that we could have that conversation and get this message out, especially mm. to non-indigenous folk, because you know, yeah, it's not a get out of jail free card. Mm. It it absolutely is not. What um, now? And I am not a Gladu writer, um, mm. but you know, from what I know, it is about making sure that during sentencing, um, that instead of just being as Joey. Toussaint mm-hmm. uh, has, or Toussaint, uh, yep. I know on the prairies, you know, we, we tend to, <laughs> with my own name, tend to <laughs> anglicize all the French names. Um, you know, it's not, it's about taking into uh, account the factors that have created um, the person and their behaviors. Yes. And so when we take that into account, then it's how do we uh, make this person actually um accountable for what they have done, mm. because there may have been a criminal act committed, of course, um, you know, if they're being sentenced and have pled guilty. Um, but how do we take into account the experiences that have led them to this place in their lives mm. and and to this this um, act? And instead of just locking them up and and you know compounding the trauma, as Deborah has said, and as I say in the book, how do we? You know, make sure that they can actually understand what led them to Mm -hmm. to build that self awareness themselves and also to try to change um, and to let go of some of those unresolved emotions so that they can actually seek change. Mm. Because otherwise, they're going to go out into society at some point. I mean, not a dangerous offender because that's indefinite, you know, locking up for life, Um, but they're going to be out in society. And unless we heal them through our systems and institutions, then uh, the pattern's going to continue. Right. And none of us want that, right. um, you know. And and I would say to to some folks, uh, non indigenous people who who worry about cost, mm. well, it's cheaper to to help someone and to uh, create mm. a supportive society than right. it is to lock them up. It right. is incredibly expensive to lock someone up and to keep them locked up. Sure, um, and that's just the money part. It's it's also expensive to society, in terms of the effect on the family, in terms of the effect on the victims. Um, and not having that sort of um, ability to to have any sort of mediated um, discussion and and healing for both sides, it's incredibly um, you know destructive to Indigenous society and to Canadian society. Mm. So,
0: you know, we um, we have literally I would say just scratched the surface of yeah. this yeah of this topic it's and it's a your pretty book. dense book <laughs> it is i mean it's dense it's not it...
1: a hard read like i, no. I deliberately used no. everyday language yep. and i translated the research and all the stuff that nobody wants to read because it's mm-hmm. bleh, right yeah. um into very plain language absolutely but yeah. there's a lot in here
0: yeah there is and and yep. that's what makes it very accessible for yep. you to to read through it and ponder yep. um and think about uh how these things reflect if if if, if you have been, whether Indigenous or non-Indigenous, uh, things that re- that make sense to you in your own life or mm-hmm. things that you've seen, uh, you know, uh, there there's some things in here that I wanted to get to that I knew we wouldn't get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, for instance, um, you know, I was I was wondering about pushback mm-hmm. from this book, mm-hmm. <laughs> from the Indigenous community. I'm yep. um, also, and we're running out of time now, so we're going to have to go. But you're coming back on. And yeah. you are definitely coming back on, right? Okay,
1: I'm in. All right. It's a privilege. So we're going to
0: have uh, Suzanne back in again to talk more about this book because it gets into so much that we can uh, chaos junkies, for instance, you know, just oh, yeah. the term that's in there. that uh, yep. And the lateral violence, violence connection. Yep. So yep. thank you so much for coming in. Miigwech and Wanishi for coming in. We look forward to having you back on. And also thanks to Deborah Charles who came in and explained that story of Joey Toussaint, uh, Toussaint as it were. Thanks again, and make sure to listen next time on Moment of Truth and Element FM.